Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen. Muhammad Qasim Zaman's Islam in Pakistan, A History, is a landmark publication in the field of religious studies, modern Islam, South Asian Islam, and by far the most important and monumental contribution to date in the study of Islam in Pakistan. This book takes the reader on an intellectual roller coaster that through mesmerizingly layered archival work makes visible for the first time in the Euro-American Academy the religious thought of a number of previously unknown yet extremely important actors while thoroughly complicating conventional wisdom about a number of familiar religious and political actors. As has been the hallmark of Zaman's previous scholarship that traverses early medieval and modern Islam, the main strength of Islam in Pakistan also lies in the way it seamlessly moves between the close and unexpected analyses of complex religious texts and the careful historicizing of the significance and ambiguities invested in those texts and in the careers of their authors. Islam in Pakistan presents a detailed account of the ambiguities surrounding the relationship between multiple claimants to Islam in Pakistan. The chapters in this book examine a range of critical themes, including the career and ethical commitments of modernism in Pakistan, ulama-state relations, shifting views on religious minorities, the complicated place of Sufism's religious history, and the nuances involved in understanding jihad and militancy in Pakistan. This lucidly written book is a must-read for all students and scholars of Islam. It will also make a great text for advanced undergraduate and graduate seminars on modern Islam, South Asian Islam, and South Asian religions. Here now is my conversation with Professor Muhammad Qasim Zaman. Hello, Qasim. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well. How are you doing, Sher Ali? Very good, Qasim. Thank you so much for your time and for such a meticulous and wonderful uh, book and such a monumental contribution to the study of Islam and South Asia. Uh, Qasim, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. And if I could ask you a two-part question in that regard. One, if you could share a bit with our listeners about how you became a scholar of Islam. And then secondly, how you got to write this particular book. So. Uh... I've I've had a fairly long-standing um, interest from from my late teens in um, uh, in history, uh, history of modern South Asia, the history of uh, Islam, and so it wasn't a particular surprise to people who knew me um, 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 some decades ago that I um, I would probably become an academic and would probably uh, want to become uh, some kind of a historian. So, um, so that's, that's part of it. Uh, initially, my interests, however, uh, as I um, was thinking about graduate school, uh, were in, um, um, in early Islam, in the first centuries of Islam. Um, and that's what I did my uh, PhD on. Um, the, the focus there was on the um, social and the political uh, and the broadly uh, religious context in which the uh, ulama emerged uh, in um, in the eighth and ninth centuries of the Common Era. So, so that's where I um, I started serious uh, scholarly work. 
in my career. And uh, um, I didn't have any particular intention of uh, doing anything different from from that early uh, interest, but um, it just so happened um, um, I spent it a um, about a year or so in Pakistan in the mid 1990s, and I was I was quite intrigued by the developments in the country at that time, and also quite interested in the idea of exploring uh, the sorts of trajectories uh, that had brought um, uh, the traditionally educated religious scholars, the ulama, and their institutions of learning, the madrasas, to where they were. In Pakistan in the in the mid 1990s, so, uh, so that's what I started to um, to become seriously interested in. Um, uh, and uh, for me, um, a good sense of continuity was the fact that I had just completed a dissertation on the emergence of the ulama uh, under the early Abbasid uh, caliphs. So that gave me uh, some of the uh, background in the institutional uh, history of the ulama and uh, uh, became the context in which I um, decided to explore uh, the ways in which uh, uh, they had undergone their transformations uh, and that institutions had evolved and changed uh, to what they looked like then and, uh, and now. Uh, so this is, in a in a in a nutshell, the um, uh, the path uh, that took me to the study of of uh, of Islam in modern South Asia. I was interested, however, not simply in looking at um, at what was happening in Pakistan, but also it seemed to me uh, uh, important in order to adequately understand and explain things effectively to both look at. Muslim South Asia in a in a uh, in a sort of a longer view, uh, starting at least from the onset of colonial rule. On the one hand, uh, to understand you know what the what the larger context was in which uh, contemporary Pakistani developments in the matter of Islam were to be understood, but also uh, another as another facet of of helping myself and, and presumably uh, the readers of, you know, what would come out of that research, uh, understand things better, to look at certain other contemporary Muslim societies and see, see how they compared uh, with Pakistan uh, in terms of these institutions of learning and in terms of, of the ulama. So, so, so that's, that's what uh, really um, um, took me about Two decades ago, to the study of of Islamic developments in modern South Asia and more specifically in Pakistan, and uh, in a in a in a sense, I think it's fair to say that um, although this book, Islam in Pakistan, has been the object of sort of intensive work over the past five or six years, but the but the general thinking and reading um, and research has has continued for for a little more than two decades. That that you know um, uh, has has culminated in this uh, in this study. Terrific. Now, one of the central uh, themes of uh, the early part of the book and the book as a whole 
uh, is the relationship that you chart between these two groups of scholars you call uh, the ulama, the Muslim traditionalist scholars and the modernists. And you also show in the early part of the book that, uh, in fact, there has been some very interesting shifts and changes in the very career of modernism uh, in Muslim South Asia and especially in Pakistan. Uh, and that those shifts have had a great uh, bearing on their relationship with the ulama also. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this particular theme of the book, the modernist ulama relations and how these shifts from the early modernists whom you show were much more comfortable with the ulama milieu to later more western educated modernists, a lot more suspicious of the ulama and their activities. Uh, if you could speak about this uh, theme of your book and the implications of these shifts uh, for the Pakistan movement. Uh, especially on questions of law and politics, uh, as you chart uh, in the early part of the book. Okay. Um, one of the things that I uh, that I note to which you um, um, refer uh, is the fact that um, the people that I characterize as the early modernists, the likes of, say, Sayyid Ahmad Khan, the founder of uh, uh, Aligarh College, uh, and many of his uh, colleagues and uh, and uh, co-workers um, can broadly be characterized as the products of the same kind of intellectual culture um, of which the contemporary ulama were also the products. Uh, so in that sense, even though there was a great deal of acrimony at times, in their relations with one another, uh, but but the overall culture of which they were products, in which they were anchored, uh, had many commonalities, and so I think that it can be it can be argued that um, that uh, those early modernists had a much better grasp of what they were critiquing in the culture of the ulama than might be the case uh, in case of uh, later modernist Muslims. Um, and the key reason, as, as, as I just um, alluded to it, is that the, the kind of a shared culture that uh, the modernists of um, the late 19th century were grounded in could no longer be taken for granted in uh, the early decades already of the 20th century. What the what the implication of this has been is what you might call an, an increasing sense of incommensurability between these two cultures, between the culture of the ulama, which which underwent significant transformations, um, as I as I show in in this book and in some of my earlier work, uh, but at the same time um, has important facets of continuity with with earlier ways of thinking, with a certain scholarly um, uh, tradition and so forth. That um, that kind of culture was increasingly uh, unavailable. Uh, to the uh, Muslim modernists of the uh, of the early and mid 20th centuries, unlike their um, forebears in the late 19th century. So, so the so so broad implication of this was of this incommensurability, uh, this growing incommensurability was um, a failure one 
to properly understand what the other side was saying, a growing suspicion of what the other side was up to, what it represented. Uh, and I think it, it can be argued, even when there were alliances, as there often were, for instance, during the course of the Pakistan movement in the 1940s, uh, but an increasingly instrumental nature of those alliances, uh, so that even those, in case of the Muslim League and particular groups of the ulama, which were uh, siding with the Muslim League and supporting the demand for Pakistan, that there was, in fact, considerable suspicion lurking not very far beneath the surface, even of those alliances. So that kind of, of uh, the shallowness of the alliances and an increasing inability to, um, to properly understand, not necessarily just to trust or not to trust, but even to understand what the rival position was, uh, has been increasingly characteristic of the relations uh, between um, um, the ulama and the modernists. Uh, you were asking about what the implications of this may have been in, say, law. I think one sees this quite clearly in, um, in uh, some major legal initiatives uh, in the late 1930s in colonial India. Uh, and there, there is a sense that even when the Muslim League leadership is spearheading legislation in the name of the Sharia, but the ulama have significant misgivings about how the Sharia, how the name of it, how the symbolism of it is being deployed. And even when that legislation um, is, is carried through uh, in the legislative assemblies, there is a significant sense of disaffection on the part of influential Rama circles about exactly what has been achieved uh, in that legislation and whether that actually conforms to the ulama's understanding of what the Sharia is or what it represents or whether that is, rightly or wrongly, but nonetheless from the ulama's perspective, uh, essentially a kind of an instrumentalist use of Islamic symbolism for political causes. Now, one of the things that I found particularly uh, instructive and fascinating was the way you frame uh, the uh, Muslim modernism in Pakistan as having its own ethical commitments, as, as you put it. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this category of uh, uh, ethical commitments. And uh, uh, let's try to take two examples that uh, come up in uh, your early chapters of uh, Muslim modernist experiments with the state. Uh, you uh, spend a lot of time talking about the Muslim modernist scholar and then later Islamicist uh, Fazlur Rahman and his relationship to Ayub Khan. And then you talk about uh, the modernist scholar uh, Javed Ramadi's role during the Musharraf era. I was wondering if you could, uh, using these two examples from two di very different time periods of the 60s and the early 2000s, etc., uh, talk about what you call the ambiguities and constraints of uh, modernist experiments and interventions in Pakistani Islam. So that kind of a two-part uh, question. Yeah. Um, so um, just just a word before talking about Fadl Rahman and uh, and Ramadi, Just just a few words on the question of uh, um, of uh, the modernists' ethical commitments. Um, I think um, um, two two points might be worth making here. Um, the first is that the, the modernist deployment of ethics, particular conceptions of, of the good and its public and political 
sort of uh, um, uh, relevance um, is a way in which many modernists or from the late 19th century onwards have tried to um, downplay uh, what they see as the excessive legalism of the ulama. So one of the one of the long-standing modernist complaints about the culture and about the commitments um, and norms of the ulama is that this is uh, an excessively uh, legalistic culture that not only does their commitment to their particular understanding of the Sharia um, does, uh, do a disservice to other facets of Islam, uh, but that what what makes things worse is that it's a it's a hidebound, unchanging, um, uh, taqlid based uh, um, understanding of the Sharia. Now. Um, by way of context, it, it needs to be understood that um, that when the modernists um, use terms like taqlid, uh, they have a particular understanding of it. Taqlid, of course, is something that many ulama um, to this day uh, in South Asia and in other Muslim societies, many other Muslim societies would uh, would happily claim as as their approach to the past. Uh, what they mean by it, what what the uh, what the ulama mean by it, is uh, essentially a sense of discipline, a sense of coherence, a sense of authority in how they are um, uh, guided by Islamic legal norms. That is to say, that taqlid for them is uh, the opposite of capricious, arbitrary ways of understanding and living according to Islamic law. Um, and and from their perspective, therefore, taqlid essentially is the sort of framework uh, in terms of which they would follow particular norms, and in and and in light of which, uh, you know, um, they would work with particular rules for the further derivation of Islamic legal norms. This is this is their understanding, a uh, sort of an authoritative framework. Uh, in which uh, the law is to be further developed. In other words, from their perspective, they're not necessarily averse to the further development of the law. The question is that there need to be certain um, boundaries and a certain discipline uh, and a certain methodological framework in which this would be done. When the modernists from the late 19th century um, onwards have spoken of taqlid, on the other hand, they have tended to see it as, as a common sort of rendering of, of it in, in English has it as blind imitation. That is to say, uh, just a kind of a mindless um, um, form of rote repetition of earlier um, um, dictates and rulings, irrespective of the time and place that one might be looking at. So this, this I think, is already an interesting uh, indication of the, of the distance that has tended to separate with, uh, you know, um, uh, with increasing severity, the the camp of the uh, the modernists from the camp of of the ulama. Although, and hopefully, we'll have occasion to to come to this in in the course of our conversation today as well. Neither camp is monolithic, uh, and there is is plenty of variation. Uh, there's a whole spectrum in each case, but nonetheless, you know, just just. Uh, in, in broad sort of schematic terms, I think it's, it, 
it's worth highlighting that you know there is a distance um, that 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 distance has has acquired increasing severity and understandings of of something like Taqlid is an interesting illustration of this. So the so the so the point of this background um, is to to note that the modernist ethical commitments are a way of getting away from what they regard as the ulama's hidebound straitjacket kind of uh, legalistic Islam. Uh, from the perspective of the modernists, already from the time of Sayyid Ahmad Khan and then of his successors and so forth, again, with all the variation within their ranks, um, Islam is something that represents uh, uh, good values. Um, and um, it just so happens that Islam has the most perfect expression of those good values, but that these are values which are actually universally shared. And that once good values found anywhere, once they are properly translated into an Islamic idiom, would be found to be eminently in consonance with the Quran and the example of the Prophet Muhammad. So, so this is, in a, in a very broad kind of a way, uh, the modernist understanding of um, of what Islam is, what the Islamic ethical commitments represent, and the universality of them. All right. So um, my um, concern in this chapter is to show, one, that these ethical commitments of the modernists have, um, have shaped their view, not just of Islam, uh, but also uh, of the ulama and has undergirded the kind of uh, acrimony that they have often felt and have expressed towards the ulama precisely because the modernist camp, members of the modernist camp have seen the ulama as lacking in these kinds of ethical universalistic uh, commitments. Um, now, another thing that I, and two other things that I note in talking about these um, um, uh, these ethical commitments is one that uh, whether or not the modernists necessarily recognize that, but many of these ethical commitments are actually deeply indebted to the Sufi tradition. And this might come as a surprise to, to some readers, some people, because you know, many of us are also conditioned to seeing a certain antagonistic relationship between the reformist modernists and the Sufis. And in fact, I have a chapter that I, uh, uh, in this book, that, that talks at some length about, about this matter as well. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there is a significant, uh, very substantial Sufi background to uh, the ethical understanding uh, of Islam that the modernists have had since the late 19th century, and and Sufism is uh, a key part of that of that context. That, as I said, does not does not preclude uh, a certain adversarial relationship between modernism and Sufism. But I think that it's difficult to understand these uh, these modernist ethical commitments without the Sufi context. That's that's one thing. The other thing to note about um, about the um, ethical commitments of the modernists is that it stands in some tension with uh, what I also characterize in this chapter that you're referring to as, um, as a certain authoritarian context, a certain 
authoritarian political context in which modernism has existed in uh, Pakistan. And uh, the sort of starkest expression of it has been um, um, one that um, many modernist ideas have had authoritarian implications in terms of professing, uh, you know, somewhat exclusionary um, unitarian uh, conception of Islam, um, whether or not this is this is recognized, but I think that um, uh, it 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 uh, it uh, can be seen as as being in effect. And the other thing, one expression of that actually is uh, the willingness of many modernist intellectuals to um, um, to get the job done, so to speak, to have the modernist interpretations of Islam supported through uh, uh, various kinds of alliances with authoritarian regimes. This is the case uh, in the 1960s uh, when Fazl Rahman was um, um, working in Pakistan and quite close to the centers of power. And this was also the case um, in the 1990s and the, and the 2000s um, uh, um, uh, until 2008 when, um, when Ramadi had uh, um, some degree of official patronage of the Musharraf regime. So, so this, is, this is by way of a, sort of a long-winded context um, uh, in which to understand uh, some of the ambiguities of the ethical commitments of the modernists and their relationship with um, uh, with authoritarian regime. Now, um, if you think this is enough, I'll stop here. If you want me to talk specifically about Fazl Rahman and Ramadi, I'm happy to do so. I think please do. That's a very fascinating part of the book. So I think our listeners will really uh, benefit if you could briefly touch on that. Okay. So um, I think that the um, one of the just just very briefly in terms of some of the similarities and the and the uh, and the differences um, between Fazl Rahman and uh, and and Javed Khamidi. The the similarity, of course, as I've already just um, um, mentioned, is um, uh, the the willingness of both of them uh, to do a good part of their work uh, under the shadow of. Um, of authoritarian uh, regimes also, and this is not just peculiar to them, but also of, of many modernists, um, um, many other modernists as well, uh, a certain lack of, uh, of an independent um, social base, which is precisely uh, one of the big strengths that the ulama and their culture has had uh, and, has, and has enabled them to, to thrive and has uh, been a, a, a significant liability, uh, this lack of a social base so far as the modernists are concerned. So in this, in this instance, Fadl Rahman and Ramadi and other modernists are, uh, are quite similar. Um, the, the, the difference is, uh, again, very, in, in very broad terms, uh, um, I find, um, Ramadi's uh, modernist positions to be significantly uh, more ambiguous uh, than those of Fazlur Rahman. This this may not necessarily be a bad thing, uh, but but it it 
um, it does to me suggest a significant change in the in the fortunes of modernism itself uh, between the 1960s when Fazlur Rahman was active in Pakistan and uh, the 1980s um, uh, and 90s uh, and the 2000s when Hamidi was active in in um, in Pakistan and and uh, two or three. Um, um, quick examples of this, each of which I talk about in the book. Um, Fazlur Rahman's modernist proclivities, to which he gave extended expression in uh, some highly interesting uh, and quite well researched um, writings, uh, many of them published uh, in uh, the Journal of the Islamic Research Institute called Islamic Studies in the 1960s, and some of them later published also as independent uh, books. Um, um, the, the ways in which Fazlur Rahman develops his particular modernist positions are fairly clear-cut. Um, an example, for instance, would be that of Rahman's writings on Hudud. Uh, which is to say the uh, punishments um, uh, uh, relating to criminal law um, uh, mandated specifically in the uh, in the Islamic foundational texts, in particular in the Quran, and which are regarded by the ulama as, for that reason, uh, non-negotiable, unlike other punishments, um, and which are given typically uh, to the to the ruling authorities. To implement, and which, in, in case of the Islamists, often become the sort of badge uh, for the uh, for demonstrating the degree to which a regime is in fact an Islamic one. Fazlur um, Rahman um, um, had, among other things, a very interesting short article uh, on the idea of hudud, in which basically he offers, uh, you know, not a legal but an ethical interpretation of what the hudud is, and basically. Um, you know, puts forth, uh, put forth, puts forth the argument that this is meant essentially to be a deterrent, and that uh, one doesn't necessarily have to adopt the particular forms of hudud as Islamic law has articulated them for it to be necessarily implemented, but rather that as a deterrent could take many different forms according to uh, different times and different places. Which, by the way, is an idea uh, that has an interesting genealogy and goes back in um, um, uh, in some understandings to uh, to Shah Baliullah of Delhi as well. Uh, in the 18th century, and Iqbal uh, was someone who had highlighted this idea in his in his work as well. But in any case, this is this is something that is uh, quite um, uh, powerfully put forth by Fazlur Rahman um, as a way of dealing with this uh, difficult question of. Of hudud, which arguably is a is an important part of of the Islamic legal tradition. Ghamidi, on the other hand, and this this underscores the differences between between the two men, um, essentially accepts the idea of hudud in the more or less conventional Islamic legal um, uh, understanding of it. So he he might try to sort of limit its implementation or so forth, but the very idea of hudud itself is not questioned in the manner in which Fazlur Rahman does question it. That that would be one example. Another example has to do with um, with financial interest, um, which the Quran um, um, 
denounces in a particular understanding of it as riba. Now, Fazlur Rahman wrote quite learned things uh, about about interest um, and uh, essentially was able to engage with the ulama in the 1960s on on their own turf on this matter uh, to show that um, what the Quran forbids is this doubled and redoubled form of usurious and uh, utterly destructive forms of interest rather than the kinds of financial transactions on which a modern economy uh, depends and so forth. Ghamidi, for his part, more or less accepts the traditional Islamic prohibition of, um, of interest, which obviously makes him uh, um, a sort of um, an uncomfortable ally um, um, while it lasted of the Musharraf regime. So these are examples that, uh, and, 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 and there, are, there are others as well, um, of, um, uh, on the one hand, the differences between Ghamidi and, uh, and Fazlur Rahman, which I take to be more than just the differences between two intellectuals. They can also be interpreted, I think, once you put them in the larger sort of historical context and the changes that have come about between the 1960s and, and, and the 2000s. Uh, in trajectories of Islamic modernism in Pakistan itself, um, um, uh, and and they and they suggest a certain uh, weakening of the discourses of um, of Islamic modernism. It's it's striking, for instance, that when the the Sharia uh, appellate bench of the Supreme Court of Pakistan in 2002 overturned uh, an earlier uh, decision by that appellate bench. On the matter of financial interest, um, the decision was hurried and superficial, with very little uh, sort of uh, indication of an intellectual engagement on the part of the modernist judges with the question. And what was equally striking was that it seemed as if, from the decision and the and and the deliberation that had gone into that decision in 2002, it seemed as if. Fazlur Rahman had never written on the matter of uh, of riba. So uh, his work, which I thought was quite substantial uh, in, in its own terms, but also in terms of its engagement with the ulama and and a and a point by point refutation of the ulama positions, uh, is cast over in almost complete silence. So, so so I think that these are interesting indications. Um, uh, of the broader sort of landscape of Islamic modernism over the course of these several decades that separate Rahman and Ghamidi. Now, two other major strengths that I found um, in this book is one that it really uh, thoroughly complicates these uh, categories of the modernist and the ulama by showing the kinds of convergences and also divergences between these categories. And secondly, it also introduces uh, new actors that I don't think are very well known at least in the Euro-American Academy, in relation to the terrain of Islam in Pakistan and South Asia more broadly. So yes. my next question uh, relates to these two aspects of the book. Uh, I was wondering if you could introduce our listeners, Qasim, to these figures, very fascinating figures of uh, Jafar uh, Pulwarwi and Hanif Nadwi, whom you uh, categorize under this category of the modernist ulama. I was wondering uh, if you could explain a bit this category uh, in relation to these two figures and Speak maybe briefly about the kinds of issues that they engaged and how their engagement with those issues showed certain limits to their very modernism 
uh, as as ulama yes um well i should i should say first of all um i too find uh find them uh, extremely interesting and uh and uh, um i think it's not unfair to say um ra- rather forgotten um and not just in the uh uh not just that they've not been no- noticed in the uh, in the uh, Euro-American uh, Academy, but they seem also to have been forgotten um, in Pakistan itself. Um, so these are people that I characterize um, both as uh, as modernist ulama, but also as uh, uh, people who occupy something of a uh, middle ground between the uh, the modernists and the uh, the more traditionalist kinds of ulama. Now, um, just going back um, for a for a moment to to um, to what we were discussing um, a few minutes ago, um, the the camps that we are talking about, whether it's the ulama or it's the modernists or it's the Islamists or it's the Sufis or there are, you know, um, other uh, sort of groups and actors and uh, and people, um, they're not monolithic. Um, uh, there is a great deal of variation and um, and diversity and contestation. Within their ranks. Now, we do have to use, I think, um, categories and sort of, you know, terms as heuristic devices in order to make sense of a highly complex, fractured landscape. But I think that as we, precisely because they're heuristic uh, categories, we need to recognize, we need to guard ourselves against reifying them to think or to, or to, or to um, uh, you know believe that that everyone um, who is being put for analytical purposes in these camps is necessarily representative of of uh, of, a, of one shared position. That is that would be misleading and and quite unhelpful. So um, that's that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is, despite um, what I was saying earlier about an increasing distance. From the 19th century onwards, between uh, the uh, the ulama and the modernists, there have been people uh, up until you know the 1970s and the 1980s in Pakistan, and in some instances, uh, perhaps uh, in in more recent years as well, who have in fact sought to straddle uh, those camps again, uh, you know, uh, illustrating. Uh, that sense of um, of differentiation of variety within each of these camps. Um, the people that you mentioned, Jafar Kulbarvi and Hanif Nadvi, and there are others too that I mentioned in the book, um, are good examples. So um, what they represent is um, just very broadly two things. On the one hand, these are people, both Kulbarvi and Hanif Nadvi, just to limit ourselves to these two for now, who who come uh, to the table, so to speak, with solid uh, traditional uh, Islamic educational uh, credentials? So these are people who are completely at home in <clears throat> the Islamic um, religious, intellectual, philosophical, legal, theological 
mystical traditions. So extremely learned uh, people, uh, versatile, um, uh, well-rounded so far as the Islamic um, learning is concerned. Um, but at the same time, people whose um, um, sort of intellectual orientation uh, is um, uh, um, is in some accord with the uh, with modernist sensibilities. So both of these gentlemen, uh, Kulbarvi and Hanif Nadbi, they were both products of of the Nadwatul Ulama in Lucknow. Uh, had both been educated in in late colonial India uh, at the Nadwatul Ulama. Uh, but both of them um, spent their careers at an institution uh, founded by um, uh, a noted modernist of Pakistan's early years, a person named uh, Khalifa Abdul Hakim. And he had founded, under the patronage of the government, uh, the Institute of Islamic Culture in Lahore, which still exists, but uh, as is the case with several of these institutions as a shadow of its, uh, of its earlier history. Uh, and that's where they were hired uh, as, as research scholars, and that's where they did most of their um, writing. Both of them published many books on, um, on the Quran, on Islamic law, on contemporary social um, um, and, and legal problems, uh, on philosophy, in particular um, Hanif Nadbi did, and, 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 and so forth. So, so these are people, I, I call them modernists, uh, or, or modernist ulama because on the one hand, uh, in terms of the training, they are uh, uh, recognizable as, as um, uh, you know, among the best of um, uh, the ulama in terms of the training and their learning and so forth. But in terms of their orientation, in terms of the alliances they made, in terms of the sorts of legal and other initiatives that they were uh, supporting or undergirding, uh, through their work, uh, they are uh, closely allied with the um, uh, with the with the modernists. Now, an interesting thing to um, uh, to to conclude this point with, I think, is that uh, if you look at you know the sort of back and forth between um, some of the sort of uh, most um, ardent modernists of Pakistan's early years on the one hand and some of the most conservative traditionalist kinds of ulama on the other, uh, you would think that there is no middle ground uh, and that the arguments are just sort of, you know, um, uh, flying past the other camp. Uh, however, when you look at the work of, um, of people like Pulvarvi and, and, and Hanif Nadli, you realize that um, that there are good answers uh, from the modernist camp that can be given to some of the strongest of the ulama's objections to uh, modernist initiatives. On the one hand, but you also realize, and I think this is equally important to note, that for all the alliances that these modernist ulama have made with the, you know, with the other sort of Western-educated modernists, that they are not necessarily on the same page on everything with those Western-educated modernists. For instance, Hanif Nazbi has a short but highly illuminating 
book on the question of ishtihad. It's called Masalai Ishtihad. And, you know, quite apart from calling for renewed initiatives by way of ishtihad and all of that, which, you know, would not be altogether comfortable to the more traditionalist ulama, he is also highly critical of what he takes to be, uh, you know, unconstrained claims to ishtihad on the part of uh, Western-educated modernists whose knowledge of Islamic law or of the Islamic tradition is, is rather superficial. So these people occupy a really interesting space and a rather uncomfortable space uh, between the camps of the modernists and the, um, and the more traditionalist ulama. And I find that um, people like them have been, have been in significantly short supply in, most, in more recent decades in Pakistan. Let's uh, shift to another uh, major theme of this book, which is uh, ulama state relations, uh, a theme that you've written about in your previous work, and you continue to do so in this particular book also. And um, let's again use a strategy of comparing two important uh, moments uh, of time uh, where the ambiguities of ulama state relations really comes into central view in particularly interesting ways. Um, I'm referring to your discussion of the Muslim Family Law Ordinance of uh, March 1961, and then you talk about the uh, Women's Protection Act of 2006. Um, I was wondering, uh, with a brief uh, description of what these two uh, uh, laws were about, for listeners who might not be familiar, if you could uh, talk a bit about how your analysis of these two moments uh, shows uh, some of the ambiguities uh, surrounding uh, ulama state relations that you uh, argue for, that you show uh, in this chapter of the book. Yes. Um, so the um, the 1961 uh, Muslim Family Laws Ordinance is is one of the most important pieces of uh, of modernist legislation uh, in, um, uh, in in the country, um, and uh, you know it um, as as the name of the ordinance suggests it. Um, um, it has to do with uh, what what is sometimes characterized as the sort of core area uh, of Islamic law, which has remained in effect, uh, unlike many other facets of, of the law uh, through colonial times. Um, and that has to do with matters relating to marriage and divorce and inheritance, etc. And so this, uh, this uh, piece of legislation uh, enacted under the Ayub Khan regime um, uh, um, was meant to um, to reform and and to and to change certain things which were seen as as in need of uh, as in need of change. Um, uh, the um, uh, the Protection of Women Act of two thousand six is essentially an effort to uh, sort of undo certain aspects of the nineteen seventy nine Hudud ordinances that General Zawal Haq had put into effect. Uh, and this was done. Uh, the first one was done. The 1961 ordinance, of course, under under the uh, uh, regime headed by General Ayub Khan, and the uh, 2006 Protection of Women Act was uh, legislation done under uh, um, during the presidency of General Parvez Musharraf. Um, both of them are highly interesting, uh, much debated um, um, uh, pieces of legislation. Both of them as as uh, you would have gathered already from uh, from my words uh, of background, were enacted during authoritarian regimes, even though in the latter case, the 
Protection of Women Act of 2006. It was it was passed by the Pakistani Parliament. Um, what both of them suggest is, and I think this is important to underscore, uh, the ability of uh, uh, of the of the uh, modernist governing elite to pull off important pieces of legislation uh, despite severe opposition uh, uh, from among the ulama and the uh, and the Islamists. Uh, and in case of the um, uh, the Protection of Women Act of 2006 has only been in effect now for just just about 12, 13 years, but the uh, but the Muslim Personal Law Ordinance has has been around for for a long time, and I think that it's an important reminder uh, that despite an intellectual decline in the fortunes of Islamic modernism, as I as I try to argue in this book. Uh, that the levers of power are still very much in their hands, and and that there is an ability on the part of the modernists, politically and and judicially, to uh, to uphold and maintain um, uh, uh, signature pieces of modernist legislation. So I think this is important to um, to to recognize as well. Now, um, one thing that I find. Um, um, Striking uh, in comparing the two initiatives, and that um, 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 is is worth mentioning, is uh, the the modernist camp uh, seemed, at least to me, to be significantly less confident of itself in 2006 than it was in 1961 uh, with the uh, with the Muslim Family Laws Ordinance, and I think an indication of that is that um, um, there was significant opposition to the 1961 ordinance, uh, which was based in turn on uh, on the recommendations of a commission that had been constituted in the 1950s to, to recommend changes, um, and there had been a, a, a sort of a severe uh, response. Uh, from um, some ulama circles to uh, to the recommendations of that uh, uh, family law commission in the mid 1950s, but but the government um, um, uh, brooked no opposition uh, in 1961 when it enacted this this piece of legislation. Um, in 2006, on the other hand, um, it is remarkable that. Uh, the government uh, of General Parvez Musharraf had felt itself to be significantly vulnerable to uh, the criticism of the ulama, and in order to uh, sort of respond to and to um, diffuse some of that um, um, uh, tension and and to uh, deal with some of that criticism, it had constituted a team of ulama uh, in 2006. To help make the case for the government and to help negotiate with the Islamist and ulama-led opposition in the National Assembly, um, opposition to uh, this legislative initiative. Now, what is remarkable about this ulama team is that uh, many of those who were on this team. Uh, led by Mufti Taqi Usmani of uh, the Darul Room of Karachi. As soon as this 
legislation became um, uh, the uh, the Protection of Women Act of 2006 became some of the most vociferous opponents of the legislation that they had in fact been meant to be defending. So that I think is and and some of the hardest hitting pieces uh, in denunciation of this act were written by none other than the leader of the Olama team that the government had mustered to make the government's case for this legislation. So I think what this suggests uh, um, is the is the rather limited resources that uh, the government in the mid-2000s found it had available to it to support uh, its initiatives. The the initiatives were still carried through. The law was enacted. Um, It is still on the books and so forth. Uh, But but, it was telling that the government, despite uh, scrambling to find significant olama support for it, ended up having to go to people who were among some of the harshest critics of this piece of legislation. That was not the case uh, in the 1960s. You know, that was a time when, um, again, people like um, uh, Jafar Kulwarvi and Hanif Nadvi and then uh, for much of the 1960s, people like Fazlur Rahman would be active in close alliance with the governing elite. So if you read already from the 1950s, you know, some of the commentary on the initiatives on the matter of family law reform, you have some um, uh, really hard-hitting conservative pieces uh, notably by people like Ifishamul Haqtanavi. Uh, but you also have reasoned and fairly sophisticated, quite learned defenses of modernist legislation by the likes of Jafar Purbarvi. That kind of intellectual resources are in remarkably short supply in, um, uh, in the 2000s. So I think that once again, uh, you know, these, these pieces of legislation are, are, are landmark legislations which are, you know, useful uh, to discuss and know about just as part of Pakistan's history in relation to Islam, but they're also indicative of the trajectories of Islam and of modernist Islam in Pakistan over these, uh, over these many decades. Uh, let's uh, turn to chapter 5 uh, of this book, which talks about an incredibly interesting topic of uh, religious minorities in Pakistan. Yeah. And it focuses on the Ahmadis and the Shia. And you make this really fascinating argument in that uh, chapter, or your approach is to actually look at ways in which uh, discourses around the minorities oftentimes uh, are reflective of certain majoritarian anxieties. Uh, um, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the Islamist and uh, ulama uh, anxieties and discomforts with the Ahmadis and Shia. How do they overlap and differ? You show that there are certain forms of overlap, but there are also some important differences. And what are some of the sort of non-doctrinal uh, socio-political factors at play in these encounters uh, that oftentimes gets missed when one looks at these uh, uh, discourses only from uh, the standpoint of doctrinal differences? Yes. Um, I, I, I should say, first of all, Sherali, that your questions are excellent. And they are. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad and grateful for the opportunity to try to... Um, to um, um, return to some of these arguments, uh, but but they do go to to the heart of uh, some of my concerns in um, in in these chapters that you are referring to. Um, 
So um, now the, uh, the chapter, as, as you just mentioned, um, is about uh, the the anxieties of the of the Sunni uh, ulama and Islamists, whether um, we the uh, the Ahmadis and uh, and and the Shia, uh, the the key similarity in these anxieties is, of course, that um, that religious difference uh, um, is seen as 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 a problem. Um, and uh, and it's seen as a problem, um, especially when it comes to religious difference um, uh, within Islam itself. Uh, it's seen less of a problem as, as less of a problem when it when when a community is clearly sort of demarcated as non-Muslim. That doesn't necessarily make things much better for those clearly demarcated non-Muslim minorities, but at least the anxieties. Uh, are are mitigated, uh, but when it comes to minorities within Islam, uh, within the uh, the broader Muslim community, that's when the anxieties are at their sort of um, um, severest, and that's the angle from which I um, I've explored uh, the um, the position of the Ahmadis and the and the Shia. Um, so the key difference so far as these anxieties. Um, um, are concerned is, I think, uh, that the the anxieties about the Ahmadis are not simply, um, you know, about doctrinal matters that the Ahmadis have a particular view of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad or um, you know the the Lahori Ahmadis. Um, you know, have a particular view of him and the um, uh, and the other Ahmadis, uh, um, the Rabwa-based Ahmadis have have another view of him and so forth. That that goes without saying, uh, as the as a sort of uh, basis of of uh, um, those anxieties. Um, my argument in this um, in this book has been that the anxieties about the Ahmadis also have to do. Uh, with uh, Islamic modernism, with with the ulamas and the uh, Islamists' anxieties about Islamic modernism itself, and that I think um, um, takes um, um, sort of two expressions. On the one hand, many of the Ahmadi positions uh, have important uh, commonalities with. Uh, broader uh, Islamic modernist positions. So when it comes, for instance, to the question of jihad, there are important similarities between, in sort of, you know, uh, de-emphasizing it as part of the um, uh, overall Islamic scheme of things and so forth. There are important similarities between the classical modernists uh, of South Asia and the Ahmadis. Um, um, when it comes, for instance, to the views of uh, of the ulama, of the traditionalist ulama, there are significant uh, parallels between uh, the uh, between the non-Ahmadi modernists and and uh, and the Ahmadi modernists. Uh, and uh, and when it comes again to the idea 
that Islam is in need of a significant renewal, uh, whatever form you know that specifically takes, but that nonetheless there is need for it. Um, uh, there are also, uh, you know, quite apart from the doctrinal sort of uh, issues, that uh, I think that one can make a case that there are significant commonalities between the modernists in general and the and the Ahmadis. So, so that's one facet of where these anxieties come from. That that the anxieties about about the Ahmadis are an expression of broader anxieties about Islamic modernism. The other expression of that is that um, from the perspective of the of the ulama and the Islamists, already from Pakistan's early years, and in fact from from late colonial India already, um, the the very fact that that the ulama and the Islamists saw the Muslim modernists as not particularly troubled by uh, by the Ahmadi issue is itself seen by the ulama and the Islamists as a telling indication of the lack of uh, modernist sincerity about true Islam. I hope, I hope this point is clear. In other words, the point is that the Ahmadis, from the perspective of the ulama and the Islamists, the Ahmadis are non-Muslims. They should be excluded from the fold of Islam. If the modernists are unwilling to say that they are non-Muslims, if they are unwilling to exclude them from the fold of Islam, if, if a modernist government is willing to have its first foreign minister, someone who is an Ahmadi, that is seen by the ulama and the modernists as an indication of the lack of modernist commitment to proper Islamic norms. So, so in, in other words, it is not simply the commonalities between Ahmadism and Islamic modernism, it's also the failure of the Muslim modernists in Pakistan and in late colonial India already to do anything about what is seen as the Ahmadi problem that uh, sort of heightens the ulama's anxieties as regards the modernists. And this is the sort of issue around which uh, the sort of anti-Ahmadi agitation in the 1950s and then again in the 1970s and then again in the 1980s has galvanized. Uh, so far as the Shia uh, are concerned. I think that the anxieties about them, again, they have a doctrinal sort of uh, uh, a basis as well, but quite apart from that, the anxieties about them have to do with broader anxieties on the part of the ulama and the Islamists towards the whole idea of the viability of an Islamic state. Uh, so it's, you know, um, it's it's often been said in response to Islamist and ulama demands for the implementation of Islamic law in, in a state that, you know, is said to have been established in the name of Islam and all of that. Uh, the response to those, to those sort of demands by the Islamists and the ulama has been from the modernists that, you know, you can't, you can't apply Islamic law because Muslims belong to different schools um, uh, different uh, mazahib and uh, and you know uh, for that reason it would not work. The the ulama's answer and the Islamist's answer has been that you know those differences can be recognized in terms of laws of personal status, marriage, divorce, inheritance, so forth. But that when it comes to uh, you know matters of public law, so to speak. The, uh, the school of law to which the majority of the people is um, uh, 
uh, adheres to uh, should become the law of the land. Now, the Shia of Pakistan have represented a significant challenge to that proposition. And this came out most clearly um, in, uh, in the Zawal Haq era, where they um, um, were seen as resisting the implementation of Islamic law. Um, um, and so what, what, um, what that did was to highlight uh, what was really to sort of uh, exemplify and illustrate the modernist objections to the implementation of Islamic law by the state and to highlight the sort of uh, problems in the project of having an Islamic state in the first place. Uh, so this is the kind of anxiety, I think, that the Shia have represented uh, by way of, uh, of raising questions about the whole project of the implementation of Islamic law um, uh, uh, in, in Pakistan. Uh, let us uh, turn to a theme that you alluded to earlier, Qasim, which was the indebtedness of the modernist project to Sufism, which might be a surprise for many um, for many listeners. Um, uh, I was wondering if you could, and but then at the same time as modernism is indebted to Sufism, there is always this also this constant regulation of Sufism as a tradition also uh, that is part and parcel of the modernist project. So I was wondering if you could talk about this argument that really brings into relief the ambiguity of modernism's relationship to Sufism at once indebted yet constantly regulating uh, this tradition through the example of another very curious figure that you talk about, uh, another sort of uh, figure that not much is known about, uh, the figure of uh, Qudratullah Shahab. Uh, I was wondering if you could introduce uh, this figure to our listeners and then uh, through him speak to this larger argument about the ambiguous, ambiguous relationship between Sufism and modernism in Pakistan. Yes. Um, so, um, in, in some of my earlier remarks, I've already mentioned uh, this indebtedness of um, modernist ethics to, uh, to Sufi ethics. And uh, one sees this in... Um, uh, in many key figures, um, uh, one sees this in, for instance, Muhammad Iqbal, um, um, uh, for whom, of course, as as everyone knows, Rumi was uh, uh, his muse, and uh, and the uh, uh, and the Islamic mystical tradition, especially um, 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 as as it exists in um, um, in Persian uh, poetry. Uh, was a key influence um, on Iqbal's understanding of Sufism, uh, of ethics, uh, and of Islam. Uh, it's also um, um, evident in uh, a person I mentioned earlier, Khalifa Abdul Hakim, um, uh, the founder of uh, the Institute of Islamic Culture in Lahore, which is where Jafar Kurwarvi and uh, and Hanif Nadvi had spent their uh, a good part of their career. And uh, you know, it's just worth. Noting that um, his um, uh, his his doctoral dissertation, which he did um, uh, in uh, in Germany, was on uh, on the metaphysics of Rumi and so forth. And there are there are uh, um, there are many other examples, uh, both among modernist uh, uh, political elite and modernist intellectuals and so forth. Um, so. On the one hand, that is the case. This this kind of deep uh, um, uh, indebtedness 
uh, of many modernist intellectuals to Sufism. But on the other hand, there is also uh, what one um, um, can see as as a as uh, as an adversarial relationship towards Sufism. Uh, Iqbal, for instance, um, 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 had um, some um, very um, uh, critical things that he says uh, in poetry and and in prose about certain kinds of Sufism um, and laments in the reconstruction of Islamic thought and, and in other places the, uh, the fact that uh, Sufism essentially uh, drew to itself in medieval Islam um, in the post-classical uh, from the 13th century onwards and so forth, some what he calls some of the best minds of Islam and uh, and significantly um, weakened the intellectual and the sort of activist orientations of uh, of Islam. Um, um, he has some very tough things to say uh, in his in his Persian words on Hafez. Uh, so tough, in fact, that there was a, a bit of a scandal when when uh, those verses were published, and he had to uh, take them out. In um, in the second edition of that of that book, um, um, so so there is this sense that Sufism uh, sort of deadens the uh, the intellectual vitality of Islam that uh, it has taught the lesson of otherworldliness and therefore you know. Uh, weakened uh, the desire on the part of, of uh, capable, otherwise capable Muslims to do something about, about the conditions of the world in which they found themselves and so forth. Um, there is also a sense on the part of many Western educated modernists of a certain embarrassment at, at what are seen as, you know, um, as irrational, superstitious, um, um, Sufi um, ideas uh, and so forth. Um, and um, then there is the um, 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 sort of effort, which was again already in evidence in uh, in late colonial India, in the Punjab, for instance, uh, at um, at trying to eliminate um, Sufi-related practices that were seen as embarrassing or immoral or somehow giving Islam. Or the Muslim community a bad name. For instance, the idea of women singing at uh, at Muslim shrines uh, uh, to prevent which there was a piece of legislation in the Punjab uh, in late colonial India and so forth. Uh, that kind of an impulse to regulate Sufi institutions, um, to regulate their aqaf, which are again seen as as prone to to um, to all kinds of corrupt practices and so forth. Uh, has continued um, under General Ayub Khan uh, in the 1960s, but also subsequently. So, uh, so, and 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 I argue that the uh, that the government has often been much uh, more effective in being able to regulate Sufi uh, institutions and their alqaf than it has uh, in regulating uh, the ulama's madrasas and so forth. So, so this is again the sort of you know. Um, um, uh, conflicted relationship. On the one hand, uh, there is this indebtedness to Sufism, and still uh, we have 
significant political figures in Pakistan who have Sufi um, um, affiliations, uh, are associated with particular Sufi shrines, or are devotees of particular Sufi uh, um, um, teachers or uh, guides. Uh, on the other hand, there is also a significant degree of uh, government regulation uh, and a certain discourse which, you know, uh, almost views these, these supposed Sufi superstitions as a matter of embarrassment that you might do, you know, uh, sort of um, uh, your devotions to in private, but would be embarrassed if it, if it came out. Uh, so this is, this is the broad landscape still. Um, and, and I think uh, the case of, of the person you mentioned, uh, a significant literary figure, uh, Qudratullah Shahab, um, who died in the 1980s, is an interesting one. Um, um, he is the author, among other works, of, uh, of an autobiography um, titled uh, Shahab Nama, which, um, which was published posthumously um, and which is very um, illuminating uh, in uh, laying out uh, Shahab's uh, deep uh, Sufi commitments. Now, that in itself should not be surprising. Sufism, um, um, while in some ways has done less well uh, uh, than, uh, than the institutions of the ulama and so forth, but, but still in other ways thrives. Uh, if you go to any major shrine in Pakistan, you'll see, you'll see that for yourself. Um, um, Despite all the attacks that that uh, militant Islamists and the and groups related to or affiliated to the Taliban have subjected them to and so forth, um, but what is interesting about Shahab about Qudratullah Shahab is not simply that some you know that someone should have been deeply devoted to to Sufi piety and and um, and Sufi norms, but rather that he. Uh, had this aspect to his life while working for modernist governments that were bent upon, supposedly bent upon eradicating Sufi superstitions. So the, so the ways in which he mentions, you know, particular Sufi experiences um, doesn't sit comfortably alongside the kinds of public disdain that was often expressed in modernist circles about Sufi devotionalism, or the kinds of policies meant to regulate Sufism in order to make it, you know, um, um, sort of uh, a more acceptable, closer to the mainstream facet of Islam. So, so that's that's the that's the sort of curious thing um, that um, that I think highlights the ambiguous space that Sufism has has come to occupy in Pakistan. Now you end uh, the book uh, by talking about uh, the subject of jihad and, and militancy, etc. And um, you make a very fascinating argument that in order to really try to understand um, the violence that emanates from, say, the Pakistani or the Afghani Taliban, for example, uh, one cannot reduce this phenomenon just to Islam or to state patronage, uh, but one has to take seriously the kind of uh, political and theological appeal of such outfits, and one has to sort of take seriously their their thought, uh, and that is necessary in order to even counter and provide a counter-narrative. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about 
the uh, pre and post 9-11 shifts that you chart in uh, uh, chapter 7, this is of your book, uh, in terms of the state perceptions of uh, uh, these various movements and figures. And then speak a bit about this larger argument that you make about taking seriously the political and the theological appeal of such outfits. Yes. Um, so, uh, the um, in the in the aftermath of nine eleven, uh, of course, the um, the government has. Uh, and the and the military establishment has has had to um, um, re uh, um, rethink um, some of the ways in which um, uh, the patronage of particular Islamist and militant groups had uh, um, had had taken place in the earlier years. Uh, this is of course. Uh, um, a matter on which views are quite sharply divided. Um, the official sort of uh, position in Pakistan has been um, and is often reiterated whenever there is a new crisis, uh, internally or externally, that uh, the um, that the uh, Pakistani establishment uh, has nothing to do with these militant groups and and and, and so forth. On the other hand. Um, uh, it is also the case, the very fact that these sorts of, uh, you know, things have to be repeatedly reiterated suggests that not everyone is convinced uh, by this. It is also the case, uh, as has often been pointed out by policy analysts and scholars and, um, and, and others, um, that uh, many of these groups have depended for many years, both uh, before 9/11 and after 9/11, on the patronage of uh, of the state, and that they have sometimes been used as uh, an extension of state policy. So, so these are these are highly complex matters, and uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, that there are uh, significant uh, disagreements on exactly the uh, the nature. Um, uh, and the history and the trajectories of uh, the relationships between between the Pakistani political and military establishment on the one hand and these particular groups on uh, on the other. Um, what is clear is that that so far as official policy is concerned, that there has had to be a, a significant realignment in the aftermath of of September 11, 2001. Um, I, but I, I was not interested in sort of adjudicating this particular issue. Uh, my interest in this chapter was one to uh, to provide just a broad historical overview of um, of the relationship between the state and these different groups from the time of Pakistan's inception until today. That was sort of one historical goal of this chapter. Uh, the other, in some ways, um, um, equally important concern was to think, with reference to, to, to the case of violence and jihad and terrorism and so forth, uh, about the question of um, 
of how does one uh, sort of weigh the relative um, uh, roles of of political policy and political context and political patronage on the one hand and of the Islamic tradition and its role in undergirding or supporting or accompanying uh, Islamist militancy on the other. So this, this, is, this is the sort of problematic that I had in this chapter. There are people um, inside Pakistan and outside um, in academic circles and in policy circles and, 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 uh, and in other areas who would argue that it's all about politics, that these uh, militant groups are the creatures of state policy, that they are, as I, as I said earlier, an extension of state pol- uh, of uh, an extension of, you know, uh, of uh, government policies as regards its neighbors and so forth, or as regards particular internal uh, uh, foes. Um, and that these Islamist groups essentially do the government's bidding uh, and rise and fall according as the government, you know, finds them useful or or not. Uh, there are other analysts who argue, uh, and this is an argument that is not specific, that is not uh, exclusive to to Pakistan, but I was interested in it in the Pakistani context. Who would argue that you know it's all about Islam, um, which is to say that Islam as a religious tradition, provides the resources which make people more prone to the resort to militancy. Uh, and that this is the context in which these groups ought to be understood. Now, neither side you know, represents this kind of a pure, ideal, typical sort of a position that I've just outlined. But, but, uh, but if you think of it as two camps, uh, there are many people who will be found in one and there are many others who will be found in the other. And I, I wanted, with reference to these Pakistani examples, to look at that. So my, my argument here was, just in a, in a nutshell, that on the one hand, uh, the political context matters. The, uh, the patronage that is available to particular groups uh, is an important facet or for an understanding of these groups which helps explain, for instance, among other things, why, why particular groups, you know, become active or become dominant um, on the scene rather than other groups, or why particular groups become active at a particular time rather than at another time and so forth. At the same time, I also uh, uh, wanted to argue that, uh, that, that even if people in the, you know, in the military or the political establishment or, or what have you, irrespective of what they might think, that the that the relationship between uh, between you know the state and these groups is not merely from the from a scholarly perspective that is is not merely instrumental. That is to say that they also have these these Islamist militant groups also have particular doctrinal commitments. Uh, which are also an important part of, you know, the landscape in which these groups operate and with reference to which these groups need to be understood. Uh, they are not mutually interchangeable. Uh, there are significant differences between, you know, a Deobandi group, for instance, or an Ahli Hadith group, or a Barelvi group, or, what, or, or a Shi'i group, 
or what have you. And uh, this is not to say, as I show with several of my examples, that their positions don't evolve and change or are not pragmatically modified, you know, in particular contexts. But this is also not to say that, that these, you know, doctrinal positions are always negotiable, that they can always be sort of, you know, sidelined. There are, in fact, enduring commitments. And I think that uh, a government, the state, or analysts would ignore these, these, uh, the significance and the depth of these differences only at their own peril. So, so I think that what we need to have is a kind of a framework where both sides of, of this seeming divide, the political context, uh, which provides the patronage and in which these particular groups operate, but also the doctrinal, the religious, the intellectual context in which, uh, uh, you know, in which these groups are formed and with reference to which they uh, define uh, and justify their policy and appeal to their constituents. That too is an, is an especially important uh, part of it. Probably the policymakers and members of the establishment don't have the time or the interest to think about these doctrinal matters, but I think that one ignores those things to, to one's own peril. I should just mention in passing uh, for the benefit of our listeners before we move to the next and final uh, question that uh, this chapter also includes a really fascinating discussion uh, and perhaps uh, one of the most nuanced discussions on the figures of uh, both Hafiz Saeed um, and Masood uh, Azhar of uh, Jaish Muhammad uh, since it's a timely topic. Uh, as a final uh, substantive uh, uh, question, Kasim, I w wanted to ask you about this very powerful epilogue uh, of the book in which you make the argument that one of the sort of uh, major transformations uh, from uh, say the uh, uh, mid 20th century till uh, today uh, is the absence or the relative paucity of the middlemen as you call it who could serve as a bridge between uh, the, uh, the modernist uh, uh, elite and the ulama and the Islamist. And you also powerfully argue that it is precisely this modernist inability uh, to see the nuances of ulama traditions of um, uh, knowledge that represents one of its most uh, prominent and damaging blind spots, as you call it. I was wondering if you could explain this uh, this larger argument to sort of reflect on this larger uh, trajectory of uh, thought that you have uh, covered and charted uh, in this book. Um, yes, so this... this uh takes us back to people that we were talking about earlier, people like um, um, uh, Hanif Nadvi or Jafar Kulwarbi, and then in the epilogue I talk at some length about another of these intermediate um, uh, intellectuals, a person named Murtaza Ahmad Khan Maikash. Um, and uh, my sense is that uh, this kind of in intermediate intellectuals, uh, whether you call them modernist ulama or you characterize them as people occupying uh, the space between between these different camps, uh, that uh, they were um, significantly more abandoned in the 1950s and in the 1960s uh, than they have been in the Pakistan of of the 1990s or the 2000s and so forth. Um, and um, that obviously has had uh, significant deleterious effects. 
in terms of the again the the incommensurability um, among the camps, uh, in terms also of the modernists' ability to muster people who would defend modernist positions. You know, the thing is that in the in the 1950s, um, people like Jafar Purvarvi and Hanif Nadvi had shown in the 1960s that uh, ulama arguments, ulama objections and criticisms can be given good answers. It's not as if, you know, if a leading traditionalist alim uh, um, takes a position in opposition to a particular piece of modernist legislation that the logic or the scholarship behind that position is irrefutable. They had shown that it's not necessarily, you know, um, uh, a position that uh, had no response. And they had responded in, in print uh, to those uh, challenges from the more traditionalist ulama. Um, those kinds of, as, as some of the examples I gave, especially with reference to the Protection of Women Act of 2006, suggest those kinds of intellectuals uh, have been in, in uh, much shorter supply. Now, a question that arises here is, is why is that? Uh, one, can, one can attribute that, uh, broadly speaking, to a certain trajectory of, uh, of modernist decline, but that itself begs the question of why that should have been the case. I think that, uh, again, not, uh, not to take too much time on this, but one key thing um, that has characterized um, uh, the, the modernist um, experience in Pakistan uh, and, and more broadly the history of Islam in Pakistan, which, which this book is about, is um, what I see as the lack of, uh, of modernist investment um, in the uh, fostering of Islamic resources in the country. And this, this would seem uh, um, paradoxical uh, or perhaps ironic because this is after all a country uh, that was established in the name of Islam and the modernists have not been any less um, uh, um, uh, eager uh, to, uh, to express their Islamic commitments. They are very different from those of the ulama or the Islamists and so forth, but they are nonetheless uh, significant. And as a historian, I take them to be uh, as as serious and from the modernist perspective as sincere as anybody else's. Um, but I think uh, as a historian, it is nonetheless clear that the modernist camp which happens also to be, uh, you know, the supplier of the ruling elite in Pakistan, has been rather uninterested in investing very much in the uh, in the creation or in the reproducing of of Islamic resources that would help to bolster the modernist camp. In other words, in creating or even sustaining institutions such as those at which, you know, a Hanif Nadavi or a Jafar Purvarvi had once thrived. Now, this contrasts quite significantly with the case of the madrasas, which, in fact, have continued to reproduce themselves. And, and this is, in fact, a key difference between the institutions of the ulama 
and modernist institutions. You know, Fazlur Rahman was a towering figure in the 1960s, but, but one can argue that, you know, there are few people who can claim to be his successors in Pakistan. Jafar Purvarvi and the likes of Hanif Nadvi or of Murtaza Mekash uh, were not reproduced. Unlike the ulama who have continued to produce significant figures in their ranks continuously from one generation to the next. So, 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 um, so, so this is, I think, uh, something that has enervated uh, modernism in Pakistan and uh, has had to do in part by, by uh, the lack of interest on the part of the governing elite in seriously investing in this area. With the result that, you know, they've had to scramble every time they needed the support of, of the ulama for particular initiatives. And as, as I mentioned in case of the Protection of Women Act of 2006, you know, uh, ironically, they've, they've ended up in those, in those scrambles, uh, with people who were actually some of their bitterest opponents. Um, but it also, I think some of the complacency also comes from the fact that the, that the modernist elite are the governing elite. And so they have not felt the need in the way in which the ulama or the Islamists had to actually actively work to reproduce their ranks and to cultivate their resources and to draw on them uh, uh, as, as, uh, as needed. So this is, this is one, of the, uh, one of those blind spots that you, that you refer to. The other blind spot has to do with the fact, um, um, I'll just mention two to conclude this discussion. Um, one um, has to do with the um, the modernists' inability to uh, see the authoritarian implications of their own positions, and many of these authoritarian sorts of facets of their policies, as regards Islam and in other areas, are much more evident to their opponents in other camps than they have been to themselves. But but this kind of authoritarianism has uh, has made it difficult for them uh, to to build bridges. Quite apart from the lack of institutions that would help them, sort of, you know, uh, uh, build these bridges. But this authoritarianism has meant that you know um, uh, people have been sort of um, uh, left outside. Uh, 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 the circles of those with which, with, with whom the modernists would want to have a conversation in order to, um, you know, build support for their own positions. The, the other thing is, so on the one hand, a blind, uh, a, a blind spot here would be an inability to see how modernist authoritarianism is perceived by those who are outside the modernist camp. And this is the gist of what I'm trying to say. The, the other side of this is, uh, a certain inability or unwillingness on the part of many people in the modernist camp to see much nuance in the positions of their opponents. Um, that is to say, to recognize, as, as I was mentioning earlier, that, that the ulama are, or even the Islamists are not one monolithic group. There are people among them who are the sort of most hardened kinds of conservative critics of everything that smacks of modernism. But there are other people who would be perfectly happy to do business with, you know, 
modernist intellectuals or modernist policymakers, and that they can be met halfway. When you when you paint the entire camp of the ulama with you know these uh, uh, broad brush strokes, it becomes very difficult then to find allies in their in their camp who can then be mobilized or deployed uh, in the interest of particular policy. So so again, as I say in the book. You know, to recognize such nuance is not a matter of intellectual generosity. It's a matter of pragmatic politics. And and I think part of the reason has to do for, for the failure to recognize this nuance has to do with the fact that the modernist camp continues to be in possession of the levers of power. It also has has to do, however, and this this is where we return to, you know, where we began this conversation today, Shirley. Uh, it also has to do with an increasing lack of religious literacy among the modernists. That is to say, if you are relatively unschooled in the Islamic tradition, then it becomes very difficult to see the nuances that are to be found in the culture of the ulama, not just historically, but even today. And, and you know, I should note that, that the ulama have often been, again, this is a big generalization, but for what it's worth, have often been willing to make more of those accommodations than many people on the other side have been able to vis-a-vis the ulama. So this, this is a significant, I think, uh, matter. But it's, not, it's not necessarily a done deal. This can still be remedied. But I think it's important to recognize uh, that this has been a problem and that this, this problem has cost the modernists rather dearly, in, in, and not just now, but in the past decades as well. Um, as we come to the end of our time, Kasim, uh, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, what's the next project that you're working on? I'm interested, uh, and there are, there are a number of small things, but uh, the, the main project that I'm just beginning to think about is um, a, a book on Islamic thought in northern India in the 18th and the early 19th centuries. Uh, and, the, and the primary focus is I as I imagine it at this time, um, of that study would be on, um, on Shah Waliullah of Delhi and his, uh, and his uh, sons, uh, Shah Abdul Aziz and Shah Abdul Qadir and Shah Rafiuddin and so forth. And, and, that, and that intellectual and cultural uh, uh, milieu. But, the, but I think that the, uh, what, what would hopefully uh, uh, Bring some added value to to a work on Shah Waliullah, on, on on whom many other works already exist. Of course, is to try to find a framework which um, does uh, um, three things: one, to to have space in it uh, to accommodate major facets of his thought and his uh, his successive thought, whether it is. Uh, political thought, or its law, or its hadith, or its Sufism, or its theology, um, or other things. Um, the the other thing would be to um, to not just do you know uh, intellectual history in some some kind of a narrow sense, but rather to try to locate this uh, in a in a in a robust way. In the in the political and the social context of um, of northern India in in the 18th and the 
early 19th centuries. And the third aspect of it, I think that that also um, uh, would be worth attempting, uh, also in light of my own uh, uh, um, background and interests, would be to try to relate uh, the intellectual and the cultural um, uh, uh, landscape in India in uh, the 18th and the 19th centuries with with relevant trends in the um, in the wider Muslim world. So it's a, it's an ambitious project, but I'm I'm excited about it and and look forward to um, to working on it. Islam in Pakistan: A History by Professor Muhammad Qasim Zaman, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Uh, thank you so much, Qasim, for this uh, wonderful uh, multi-layered book that has given us so much to think about and think with. And thank you so much for the generosity of your time in speaking with us today and sharing uh, some key aspects uh, of this book. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Sherry. I'm, I'm really honored um, uh, by this invitation and delighted to have the opportunity to, to, uh, to speak with you. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Muhammad Qasim Zaman about his brilliant and wonderful new book, Islam in Pakistan, a history. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you will also join us next time for another new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye.